We've got 10 nights until the next full moon. Well, he was what I would call a Sasquatch. Two pilots that showed unidentified flying objects. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. I don't believe 99% of the things that people claim they've seen. I think this is in that 1%. A lot of people make fun of me, but I don't care. I know it's there. G'day and welcome back to the Mellow Tiger podcast. My name's Bree Wolf, and joining me today is Josh Ernst and Jordan Ernst. How are you guys going? Fantastic. Happy to be here. Really? That sounded really forced. (laughs) (laughs) I have a gun to my head. Hey, 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 cut that shit out. <laughs> I want what he's having. <laughs> yeah. no you can't afford a bitch. <laughs> he's right. That's unfortunate. Mm. Well, we're up to what part two of the Night of the Grizzlies. Mm-hmm. Did you Google it, Josh? I'll just lead off, guys. What happens is... <laughs> no, I honestly didn't Google it. I don't, I, know if I, can, I don't know if I can trust you. I didn't because I wanted it to be a surprise and I just forgot all about it. That sounds so sad. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a few people I know that listen to it and they'll be like, so what happens? And I'm like, you have to you have to wait. Do you, <laughs> no worries. Do you realise what like a bait is? Yeah. <laughs> Do you, I, if I tell you, you won't listen to it is the issue <laughs> that I have. give me $5, wait in line like everybody else. Have you found you've been more, like for me, I have been more drawn to movies about grizzly bears or like I watched a grizzly man documentary I watched the 1976 movie grizzly I've been watching which is literally just draws but with a grizzly like I'm not even kidding is that it's the like, one with the donkey yes the big that's the one you, yeah, oh, yeah that's, that's the one you're thinking about. from when we were little yeah yeah and then there's also Night of the Grizzly as well, which is from the 60s, which oh, isn't bad. After we'd done our episode a couple of days later, because you just keep thinking about it and I you just know. keep wanting to learn more about it, I went and chucked on the Grizzly Maze. Remember that one? Oh, yeah. It's got, like, Piper, someone in it. Uh, James Marsden? Yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Because that's what the dude, Timothy Treadwell, he, Treadwell, he was in an area of Alaska called the Grizzly Maze. It's, like, the most dangerous for grizzlies. That's where he was camping out. But I watched that documentary. You need to watch it because some of it, it's, like, sadly funny. This one, he's, like, makes friends with his fox and he calls it, like, Night Silver or some shit. I don't know. He's, like, this is my friend. And then the fox grabs his hat and runs off and he's, like, oh, no, no, get, God damn, get back here with that. I need that hat for the rest of the trip. Oh, don't you dare take that into your fucking den. <laughs> and he goes and the, the fox has taken it into the den. And he's like, God damn it, Silver Knight, why, why you need that? You've got to be fucking kidding me. Like, he's all about the animals. He's got a kinship with that animal. Dude, he's all about the animals and then he's just yelling about this fox that takes his hat into his den. And he's mad, and, but it's like so pathetic. He's like, why are you doing this to me? It's like a child <laughs> whinging. Pretty much, it's like a kid whinging. It's kind of, it's like funny, but sad. Like, he just was like, and he's always, he's like, I don't, the ladies don't seem to like me. I think I'm not bad looking. And I'm, I'm nice, I'm polite, I don't argue, I'm very submissive. Why don't the ladies like me? Maybe <laughs> they submissive. want someone who's not as submissive. Like, he, he'll yeah. ramble like that. And it kind of feels weird. Like, I don't know if Werner Herzog, who did the documentary, I'm like, I don't think he wanted people to see this. Fuck, there goes my iPad. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? <laughs> talking bear. about bears and you just... I don't know if like weren't, like he would want anyone to have seen that and weren't, he went as like this is great put it in yeah. <laughs> excellent mm. next episode yeah. where's my hat yeah. <laughs> he was so mad about that hat I wish I had the audio I'd played it's real like I was wetting myself <laughs> he must have really oh, loved God it oh god fucking hey? damn it Silver Knight why 
did you do? Like, that's what the... Why are you going to play me like he that, was man? Trying, but the, the whole scene was, like, so cute. He was, like, rubbing its belly or whatever and playing. He's like, oh, my sweet friend. I love you, my sweet friend. Oh, no, get, get back here with that hat. Like, he was so mad. I don't know why he sounds, like, crazy and Southern because he's not, but well, that's what it was like. He was just... He went from, like, oh, the animals are gorgeous to God fucking damn it. Yeah. Like, literally. Same as that one night. Animals are like, oh, my God. He's eating me alive. Yeah. I didn't learn from my hat experience. But it was interesting, but they talk about how he goes there to do like conservation really and like protect the bears. But his presence is actually what made it worse because as soon as they became acclimatized to the, having a human there, yeah. it's he's pretty much killed him. That's, you know what I mean? Because they're not scared of humans anymore. So then they become bears that want to sniff around humans and that's how oh, bears die. That's where the problem happens is when bears get accustomed to the humans and they're mm-hmm. not scared anymore. That's where the trouble begins. Which is... And, and <laughs> damn it. Which takes us back to our story at Granite Park. Yay! So do you remember Granite Park, Josh? Yes, I do. You're like my, what do you call it, my test subject for the audience. It was Granite Park the second sort of bit with the yes, two girls. The chalet. Yeah, I know. I'm on to them still. The ladies and where they sung WAP at the dinner table. Mm. All 65. <laughs> All 65. <laughs> It wasn't even a couple that were like, this is wrong. (laughs) No, still row, row, row your boat. No, I don't even like singing that to kids alone with a bunch of strangers. No, thank you. Anyway, we return to our tragic story at the Granite Park area. A 22-year-old barely out-of-college naturalist, Miss Joan Devereux, was leading an overnight guided tour through Glacier National Park along the High Line Trail from Logan Pass to the Granite Park Chalet. It was Saturday, August 12th, and this was her first time guiding this particular hike there had been a lightning storm the day before and the more experienced rangers had been called to help fight the blazes that broke out as a result. The ranger who usually led this tour was off fighting fires, so Joan was asked to step in and take charge of 36 hikers. The group arrived at the chalet free of incident in the early afternoon and began settling in. By dinner time, a lot of other hikers had arrived and the chalet's guests swelled to 65, buckling at absolute capacity. Joan spoke briefly with a couple unrelated to the tour. They introduced themselves as Mr. and Mrs. Klein, and asked Joan if she could direct them to an overnight camping area. She pointed towards the Granite Park campground and asked the couple if they'd brought bear repellent as grizzlies were known to frequent the area. This seemed to worry Mrs. Klein, but Joan reassured her that people did camp down there and they were welcome to do the same. The couple thanked her and left. I don't actually know if people were camping down there. It doesn't say anything about, like, yeah. In the book, it didn't say that no. people were actually camping down there. They did say multiple times that that little bear always came from the Granite Park campground area. Mm. And she says, but what would she know? Because this is the first plot time she's ever been to the chalet, the first hike she's ever led. How would she even know that people I think people she's just camp- assuming because there's it, a campground yeah. down there that the people are going to be camping. So that's the only thing I kind of found Or they just call it the ground. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I know a lot about the ground. <laughs> if you put a tent on it, technically it's a campground. <laughs> So after dinner, the usual community singing had begun. <laughs> Can you imagine the manager? Just like he's probably teeth are like ground down, like, oh, make it stop. <laughs> it was cut short by an excited staff member exclaiming that the bears had arrived. Joan had already heard a lot about the bears of Granite Park. It was a topic often discussed between the naturalists at, at, the, at Glacier National Park. None of them agreed with the practice of feeding the bears, and a few had even filed reports and complaints to the ranger executive condemning the act. So far, nothing had actively been done to rectify the situation. Have I read this before? Don't know. Do you, does this sound familiar? No, no, no. I don't think you have. No, I think it's just because it's over and over. They're rectifying the situation. Okay, because yeah. like, oh, I think, it's, I think it's just the park. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll fix it. We'll fix it. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't know why. I think because I, I like read it a few times to Daniel, but I was like, it feels familiar. Like I've read it before, but it does sound. It is. It's just. Oh, like I know, and it makes you realise how repetitive yeah. it actually Honestly, it is. Have, like, I, have I said this? It sounds, like, <laughs> it sounds like you're reading the Park Rangers logbook. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what we're doing. <laughs> Couldn't afford the book. <laughs> <laughs> when the excited guests of the chalet began to make their way to view the bears, Joan attempted to caution them, advising they at least viewed the animals from the safety of the chalet balcony. This advice fell on deaf ears and the guests eagerly pushed past her to secure a prime viewing position. How rude. Like, oh. I'm, that's quite rude. <laughs> I can just imagine. Everybody, way, slow, everybody slow up. <laughs> Look at them from a safe distance. Get out of my way. <laughs> I There's bears out there. <laughs> 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 the crowd's more dangerous than the bear. Yeah. The bear just steps in and says, Oh, I've killed someone. <laughs> Accidentally. <laughs> Trying to pick him off the ground. <laughs> it was the bear. Well, technically, it is the bear's fault if you want to play like that. <laughs> Shouldn't have drawn a crowd, bear. You had control. Imagine the bear going to court. You got nothing. You could have at least worn a tie, Barry. <laughs> Joan begrudgingly followed the crowd to the trash heap where the bears were already feeding. She's like, oh, God, fucking damn, i got to go look at this shit now and make sure everything's okay. What are they doing? Actually, I'm a little bit curious. No, it's disgusting. <laughs> Bad for thinking that. Mad case of FOMO. Just, <laughs> just does not want to miss is, out. This is wrong, but it's like a car crash. You can just imagine everyone looking at it from the balcony and she just walks out the front door. i got such a good view. <laughs> She was trying to trick him so she got the yeah. best seat. <laughs> After watching for a moment, Joan turned and made her way back to the chalet. She had seen enough to cement in her mind what she was most worried about. Very soon, somebody was going to get hurt or worse. Robert and Janet Klein, the couple whom previously spoke with Joan at the chalet, were having an argument. The two. This is not what everyone's looking at. Everyone just goes here <laughs> for an argument. Sounds like it. We, that's all I did in the States was argue with Daniel over what I thought was safe and unsafe behaviour. Like, he was just like, it's fine, people do I'm like, no, I don't want to. Do you want to be a sheep? <laughs> or do you want to be a wolf? <laughs> hey, that's not funny. <laughs> don't make fun of my life. <laughs> <laughs> but pretty pretty much it was always, we shouldn't care. I don't want to camp here. This seems unsafe. This is safe. The bears won't keep. The bears will get. It's just arguments like that. And everyone around you is probably just like, oh, my God, they're the worst. I feel like it was just in the back of everyone's mind that was there. Yeah. Like, they're all taught these bears won't hurt you. Like, they're more scared of you. Yeah. But in the back of everyone's mind, they were always asking questions about the bears. Yeah. It's like even instinctually, yeah. you know that this yep. doesn't end well for Dude, humans. Dude, you sure? It's got claws and teeth. Is that yeah. insane? <laughs> no. Oh, it's just, it. if you touch it, very soft. <laughs> oh, the keys are in the safe. It won't go nice. <laughs> yeah. The two 23-year-olds had intended to sleep out under the stars at the Granite Park campground, but now with all the talk of grizzlies, Janet wasn't so sure anymore. During their hike to the chalet, they had spoken with several passers-by regarding the bears of Granite Park and the worrisome feeding. Robert was sure it would be fine and was trying to convince his wife that camping was safe, but Janet wasn't having a bar of it. She told him she was going to scrape together $12.50 and find a bed at the chalet. That's quite what scrape together $12.50. This is in 1967. You mean out of their packs or just on the mountain? I'm going to go looking for some money. <laughs> she goes into like the garbage area to collect yeah. cans. And this She's... is where it starts. That's my corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I assume it's floating. It's like the shark it's thing. You're crazy going... ladies in the pit. <laughs> She's garbage now. I assume it's like money floating around in their sacks mm. or whatever. 
Not that nut sack. <laughs> yeah, I went I straight at your there. face, Josh. Yeah. I saw it flash yeah. across. Nut sack. There's some scissors. <laughs> Robert and Janet returned to the chalet and spoke with Tom Wharton, so you remember the manager, who informed them all the beds were full, but he was happy to let them sleep on the floor for $25. Oh, you're going to say in his bed. <laughs> uh, the lady can you, not so much. <laughs> 25 bucks is fucking hefty price to sleep on a floor. So you don't even get a bed. Like I don't. I think they got a meal. They got a hot meal and everything. So you got everything else. The facilities. You just have to roll your shit out on the floor and sleep there. Yeah, pick a spot and lay down. And there are already people sleeping on the floor. So you like lay. This next is in one. a yeah, but this is shelter, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's but still, like you, as a rational thinking person, you're like, I'm not paying full price for this. No. Yeah. I would have. I wouldn't have paid anything. Twenty five dollars. What back in the day? I think that would be like three hundred bucks. Would it? Because it's not in, in 1967. How far back yeah, because $12 is probably not. It that wouldn't be far. 300 That's way too much. Okay, maybe. It'd probably be around $33.29. Shut up. <laughs> I feel like this is this is just not good of us to just assume. I think it's like, let me pull something out of my ass. Ah, 40 bucks. Let's but just if we say convert it to American money. Let's just say <laughs> we're not let's just say it's enough to like risk it's sleeping outside of, with the bears. Twelve dollars fifty, I think, was a subst- It's like sixty bucks. Mm. So what? it's like one hundred twenty dollars each. I'll Are you happy with that? Yeah, we'll round okay, sixty. Sixty Sweet. I would like to note at this point in the podcast that we have fucking no idea. <laughs> this is a completely uneducated guess. This is all allegedly. Yeah. Just sounds about sounds like the kind of money I would argue over having to sleep on yeah, the floor. I'm not yep. paying sixty bucks to sleep on yeah, the floor. Yeah, but I'd tell you a gruesome story about grizzlies and they're not charge you twenty five dollars. That's actually clever as shit. Yeah. I'd do that. I'd be like last person went down there, his head was missing, found his body, not his head. Well, honestly do what you want, but it has your scent now. <laughs> are you menstruating? <laughs> you are now. <laughs> He's coming for you. Bears can smell the menstruation. <laughs> You're a bit of garbage on you there. Ron Burgundy, that's all I can think of. <laughs> Robert didn't want to pay full price just to sleep on the floor and questioned Tom about the risk with sleeping at the Granite Park campground. He's easy in, Josh. You could have said it then, dangerous. As if you wouldn't say dangerous, sleep here, $25. Mm. Tom, not being a very marketable man, <laughs> knew he was talking about the bears and assured him hundreds of people had camped there over the summer without incident. He joked that so far no one had been eaten yet. That's poor taste. Now, yeah. it, now yeah. When what happens yeah. that night? <laughs> Robert found this reassuring, but Janet still wasn't convinced. She's, I'm jumping in your bed. She, Janet's smart. Yeah, she's like, oh, I can sleep with you. <laughs> you pay me, I stay in your bed. Yeah, <laughs> your husband just paid me for you to sleep in my bed. <laughs> Robert went on a quick hike to think about paying the hefty price to just sleep on the floor. And when he returned, Janet introduced him to a 20-year-old hiker, Don Gullet. Janet had seen Don in his pack and sleeping bag and struck up, struck up a conversation, asking if he was courageously planning to sleep in the bear-infested woods. Don informed her that he wasn't worried about the grizzlies and that he had already scoped out a nice level spot right by the trail cabin. Robert questioned Don about the proximity to the campground and he informed him it was several hundred metres away, which made Janet happy. She asked if her and Robert could tag along and view the spot and camp with Don if she found it acceptable. They walked down to the spot and Janet was starting to feel as though she may have overreacted a little. The trail cabin site was charming, right by a little stream. The campground could be seen from that spot, but it was far enough away to feel like a safe distance. The way the logs had been laid out beside the trail cabin had created a natural ladder to the galvanised metal roof, and Robert pointed out that they could use it to climb to safety in seconds if they had to. Janet declared the site met her approval, and they began setting up camp about 20 feet from the uphill cabin wall, while Don laid out his sleeping bag about 20 feet from the lower wall. So they're staying on like opposite sides of the cabin. Which is kind of weird. I don't know. I was like, you won't come camp with me, but 
don't come near me. It's like giving my privacy, but I want to keep yeah. in your vicinity kind of thing. I want the bear to get you instead of me, is all <laughs> I'm saying. That's what it seems like. Yeah. If you come any closer, we'll just get into an argument. That's what the mountain does to them. So if we split up for the night. The mountain. That's kind of ominous. The mountain makes you argue. It's the, it's the mountain's fault that the bear's doing what they're doing in the end. The clients had cooked dinner and were preparing to eat when they were approached by a pair of teenagers asking where the campground was. Robert pointed in the direction of the campground. The boy, who introduced himself as Roy, asked why they weren't camping there if they knew where it was. Janet, being honest, told him they were concerned about the bears. Roy and his young companion, Julie, laughed and said the bears were nothing to worry about. Imagine laughing. Imagine someone being like, I'm scared of the bears. I'm like, ha ha. <laughs> you fool. Yeah, exactly. You're scared of something that weighs 500 pounds with claws and teeth? Oh. You're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Just throw a rocket and yell, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> they bid Don and the clients farewell and skipped off to the campground. Like they were happy. Or happy people. The clients took their rubbish from dinner to the chalet's trash cans and hiked back to the trail cabin while watching the sunset. When they returned to the cabin, they packed up their leftovers and hoisted them high into a fir tree. Robert and Janet got into their sleeping bags and went over their bear plan. If a grizzly were to bother them, they were to grab their boots and flashlight, which had been laid out by their sleeping bags, and climb to the cabin roof. Don had just returned from the chalet and was preparing for bed. By 10.30, all three had fallen asleep. Previously in the evening, the young couple whom had spoken to Janet and Robert had made their way to the Granite Park campground. The grounds themselves were a bit of a mess. The Granite Park campground sign lay unattached in the dirt along with the rotted and broken apart building materials. So building materials had been put there to like build what picnic tables and shelters yeah, and just stuff. All, yeah, just but they'd been there for a while and no one I guess they were so overrun with the fires or whatever, no one had built anything and it was kind of like a bit of a trash ground of just decomposing materials and stuff mm, that was just yeah. left there to rot kind of thing. So the rangers probably could have got builders in to put them together? No, I the rangers like- make it. That's part of their job. Like you have to be able there's different sorts of rangers and there's like maintenance rangers and they have to be able to like build and like maintain the equipment and everything like that. So some of them have like carpentry backgrounds or like mechanical backgrounds. They're all that's what the rangers are. And they all have firefighting backgrounds because that's where they are. They have to, yeah. Just forced into it. <laughs> They have a training course probably similar to the bears. Fire, ouchie. <laughs> if you run from fire, it'll run from you. <laughs> like, <laughs> Throw a rock. <laughs> Just tell it to go away. Shoo, shoo. <laughs> but 18-year-old Roy Ducat and 19-year-old Julie Helgerson didn't care. They both worked as wait staff in the park and were just happy to be out in the wilderness. The campground had a fire pit and that was good enough for them. So Julie and Roy returned to the chalet to retrieve their packs, content with their choice of sleeping arrangement. It had been 7pm when they'd spoken to Don and the clients and by 8pm they'd reviewed the campground and was returning for the, to the chalet for their packs. Roy was aware of the bear feeding but wasn't concerned. They would be camping at least 500 metres from the feeding area which Roy felt was a safe distance. 500 metres. Jesus Christ. I feel like a kilometre isn't a safe distance. It's like being there. <laughs> yeah, just in general. So being in the park. <laughs> As they were leaving the chalet, a woman had asked them where they were off to and Roy replied they were heading to the campground. The woman exclaimed the campground is exactly where the bears come from and asked if the young couple were afraid. Roy and Julie just laughed and said they weren't scared. The they camp keep ground. laughing. Yeah. Yeah. So the campground's where they come from, not the woods. They come from where people live. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. That's what Because they'd come up the trail from the campground. Yeah. So they, they were all like, they come from the campground. That's where they hang out. One of the bears, that is. They returned to the campground, rolled out their sleeping bags and had a snack as they watched the sunset. So these people are just no tent sleeping bags? Just sleeping this out. Is just, just under the sky. That's all it is. What's the sli- what's the tent going to do when a bear comes calling? We've oh, talked about well, this. What's the, you, you, okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you It adds, would make me feel better. Yeah, yeah it adds yep. that like false sense of security. Mm-hmm. It, I don't know if it would be a deterrent. Like the bears are just like, what's in that weird 
dome and then they're just like, it's an alien and walk away or something. I don't know. <laughs> I've heard of bears going into tents and dragging people out though, so I doubt it. Were they zipped up? The, the sleeping oh, bags. The tent. <laughs> Do I just go through the tent? I'll find out for you. <laughs> Are you asking if they use the front door? <laughs> I don't think they have opposable thumbs, Josh. They just cut they can't, they can't open a tent. They can't flush a toilet. Just before dark, Roy remembered to take their leftover food and bury it by a log 200 metres away. It was a cool night, so the teenagers decided to sleep fully clothed by their hiking boots. They snuggled up nice and warm and talked for a little bit before falling asleep. So now we're heading back to Trout Lake. So you remember Trout Lake? the group Crazy of, bear. Of, yeah, the bad yeah. skinny head. Yeah, that's <laughs> Old one. skinny head. Old shithead. I remember shithead. <laughs> Earlier on that same hot night, so it's the same night, Saturday, a group of five campers were hiking over the ridge to Trout Lake. With them was a puppy named Squirt, who would tire easily and need to be carried off. So he was a large puppy. He was like a German Shepherd mix. All five hikers were employees of concessioners, and all bar one were veteran campers in the backcountry of Glacier. So a concessioner is like, they have like restaurants in the park or like gift shops and that sort of thing. That's a concessioner, and that's what they worked in there in some capacity. Mm-hmm. The Greenhorn was 16-year-old Paul Dunn. He'd only been working at the park for three weeks as a busboy. Now he joined two couples for a weekend of fishing and relaxing at Trout Lake. Fifth wheel. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Weird, sexy stuff. Both the couples invited him. Really? Mm. I'm the bus guy. (laughs) (laughs) They wanted him to clean up after him. (laughs) Come on, Otto. (laughs) The couples were made up of brothers 21-year-old Ron and 23-year-old Ray Nosek, along with their dates 19-year-old Michelle Coons and 20-year-old Denise Huckle. Denise had been the one to bring Squirt the puppy. She had previously found him abandoned in the park, sick and hungry, and quickly adopted him. Paul was concerned about the puppy's presence. During the safety lecture given by the rangers, they advised to never take dogs out on trails as they are a bear's natural enemy and may attack... Dogs are bear's natural enemy? Apparently, that's what the rangers said. You don't... I don't know. I think it was like 1960s, like, the bear is the natural enemy of the dog. You know, they just get excited about shit. <laughs> I just figured, like, they're back in that speech you now, they're yeah. like... Talking in the old way, they're like, oh, when the bears are the natural yeah, enemies yeah. of the dogs. We'll go down to the river. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the, the, they thought the dogs may attract bears. When he had asked the experienced couple about this, they said dogs were allowed as long as they were kept on a leash. Paul did not know that that was wrong. No dogs were permitted on trails under any conditions. I don't know if the couple knew that either. I don't know if they were just like, oh, no, it's fine. You can have him on a leash. Or they genuinely thought it was fine if they had the dog on the leash. Don't let your dog near the bear, but let's let hundreds of people. Dogs attract him, kind of like dogs attract sharks in the well, ocean. Is it a smell thing or is it yes. because of an aggression thing? Like the dogs I think bark it's and like they're like, a... oh, you're barking at me? I don't know. It's probably instinct. Yeah, I don't even know if it's true, to be honest. It could be like how they used to say, like, if you had your period, bears are attracted to that, which is false. They just like are like, I saw something once and a dog went, yip, yip at a bear. And they're natural enemies. Natural <laughs> enemies. Ever since then. Yeah, <laughs> Ever much. since that moment. <laughs> what, what was it? Homeward Bound. <laughs> oh, that's such a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> that is not how that, that would have really happened in the real world. <laughs> no, dogs can't talk. <laughs> 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 but Squirt was under control and no one in the group considered his presence a danger. Michelle had visited a trout lake many times before and was well aware grizzlies frequented the area. But bears were the last thing on the campers' minds as they made their way over Howe Ridge and down towards Trout Lake. They arrived at their destination, the Log Jam Camp, just before 5pm. Before they could set up, two fishermen approached them and told them a harrowing story of how the day before an aggressive grizzly had treed them for over two hours. This didn't phase the group at all. 
I mean, running up a tree from a grizzly was half the fun of being in the great outdoors. That was the general vibe, I think. They were veteran hikers, but maybe it was like a young thing. It was They just didn't think bears were dangerous. It's like cow tipping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking young people. Hey, but my it, tree doesn't have branches. Oh, well, there goes Jimmy. I mean, like... Yeah, and a lot of them didn't. But see, all it is is every single one of these are super close calls, but no one's been caught yet. So everyone's just like, I thought it's just fun and games. Everybody's been very lucky for 70 years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But would you think it was like fun if you were in the ocean and a shark had never killed anyone, but you'd swum away from one and you're like, oh, sharks are fine. They just chase you a little bit. <laughs> I feel like I'm never like, going That's kind of that like one. the vibe because yeah. they never had like a death at Glacier. They weren't, they, if you, they've never had a death, therefore grizzlies don't kill people. You know what I mean? Like, mm. that's how they, that's their logic. That's how they thought about it. No one's died, so they don't kill people. Or they would have killed someone by now, right? Right. I'm and just, this I'm, is the, I'm this is my mathematics. <laughs> I'm just putting my mind in the young people's Quick mind. math, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> in a matter of minutes, they had set up camp by the log jam and headed down to the lake to catch dinner. On the way, they quickly hoisted their food supplies into a tree. Michelle opted to stay at camp with a puppy and prepare for dinner. Her and Squirt were alone together for two or three hours before the rest of the group returned, fish in hand. Let's leave Michelle with the, the bait. See what happens. Yeah. <laughs> we'll come back in three hours. Oh, <laughs> no, <God>. he's cool. <laughs> but imagine going camping okay. with people and just leave for three hours. What do you do at camp by yourself with, you know what I mean? I'd be bored as shit. Just watch a grizzly bear with his head in a trash can. <laughs> but there's no trash cans there. Which is part of the problem. People back in the day, they didn't have the hike in, hike out rule. So whatever you take with you, you have to take out, even mm. poo. So you, you can't, back in the day, I assume there's just trash. There was trash strewn everywhere. That's what they wrote about. But I'm not sure if it was from the bear destroying the camps or just people in general would just I'd leave their trash. i a bit of both. Yeah, like half, half. Mm. Which is probably what attracted him it, to the area in the first place was exactly the trash. Exactly right, yeah. Soon the camp was filled with the sound and smell of fish and hot dogs sizzling away over the fire. Michelle, tired from setting up camp, was resting on a nearby log, staring into the slowly darkening forest when she spied a figure traipsing towards the camp. She hopped up and yelled to the group, alerting them of the bear. Ron grabbed Squirt and they all ran along to the shoreline, away from the bear that was now entering their area. They stopped about 50 metres away and watched as the skinny bear systematically began destroying their camp, starting with their freshly cooked meals. After around 20 minutes had passed and with the light of the day fading fast, the group began discussing their options. One person suggested they create a new camp and they began scavenging wood for a new fire. As they lit the fire, they witnessed the grizzly walk off in the other direction, leaving over the log jam. The group once again discussed their options. Someone suggested leaving for the safety of the Lake McDonald Ranger Station, but they only had one flashlight and the night had already fallen. Plus the grizzly had left in the direction of the trail and the campers didn't want to be anywhere near that bear. So back at Granite Park Chalet... A nurse, Anne, and her surgeon husband, Dr. John Lipinski, were sharing a room with their three children and another couple. So I guess it's not my cup of tea, but it still happens. Like you book a bed, you don't necessarily book a room. So you might get in a room with like multiple other people. Kind of like, it's hostel style. Yeah, yeah. It's just hostel, which is not my cup of tea at all. No, but think on like the guy running the show, money point of view, shove as many people as you can in a room. Oh yeah. Like in in that situation, I'm like, that's fine. But I hate like when you're traveling, like we'll just stay at a hostel. I'm like, if I have the option of paying $40 for the most disgusting hotel, like motel ever, I will pay that as Uh opposed to paying 25 to share a room with a bunch of strangers. I'll be more afraid of small talk than the bears outside of it. (laughs) How's the weather? I think women are more afraid of like, I don't know, sexual assault. (laughs) Yeah, but there's so many witnesses. You just wouldn't. Small talk. (laughs) Josh is like, small talk's the worst. Everyone goes to talk. Now you're mine. People can steal your shit, Josh, and you're like, as long as they don't talk to me. (laughs) Just don't take it. (laughs) 
like, take my wallet. I just don't want to speak to you. Please don't ask me about me. Because <laughs> I don't know enough about me yet. I'm, I'm not an interesting person. <laughs> Anne was having trouble sleeping, so this is the nurse. And when she awoke to distant screams, it was a woman she was sure. She awoke Dr. Lipinski, her husband, and they listened. There it was again, a woman screaming. Get out, she shrieked. Get away from me. At first, they assumed a man was bothering a lady in the outside bathroom. It's always bathroom. a man. <laughs> it is. It's never a bear. <laughs> I feel like people are just going to write. Oh, never, people are just going to write. Like if they do a review, review this, I'll be like, that bitch talks too much and that dude is too sexist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they ran outside onto the balcony just in time to hear the woman screaming again. God help me. He's stabbing me. God help me. Somebody help me. He's stabbing me. That's what she was so saying. It does, honestly, does sound like a man. <laughs> It probably was. It was the he part that gave it away. (laughs) (laughs) Therese, Anne and Dr. Lipinski's 16-year-old daughter, was the only member of the family fully dressed. So her parents set her down to wake up management for help. Can you imagine being 16 years old and your parents are like, go and wake up management? I'm like, "Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't even know them. You'd be so uncomfortable. Like, you'd do it, but you'd be so uncomfortable. Hey, you'd be like, fucking you go wake up management. I'm going to wake them up. The first person Therese was able to rouse was John Devereaux, the naturalist, who tried to tell the teenager she was hearing things and to go back to bed. But Therese insisted and Joan agreed to go upstairs and listen. She asked one of the kitchen staff who had come to see what was wrong to turn on the shortwave radio just in case. That doesn't sound like either you think something's up or or you're just like, that's overly cautious. I'm just going to going gonna warm the radio up. Yeah, does it, maybe, maybe it's <laughs> I'm going to load ones, the gun. <laughs> is it like a crank radio? Like, yeah. ring, ring, like crank the radio. Tom Wharton, the manager, was awoken by staff saying people were on the balcony and they were saying they'd heard someone being murdered. He told her nothing was wrong and tried to go back to bed, but the lady insisted something was amiss. He checked the time. It was 12.45am. Tom met Dr. Lipinski, Anne and Joan on the balcony. They told him what they'd heard and Tom asked what direction the scream came from and they all pointed towards the campground. So how far is the campground again from this joint? It's about 500 yards, I think it was. Yeah, which is about 500 metres. 500 metres, yeah. So, so half a kilometer. Oh yeah, it's I guess it's not really far in terms of jogging there. No, and if it's a still night, you could hear anything. If because it, it's this is the thing, the natural that's quiet. There's nothing around. There's no road so noise, carries. no noise. Yeah, it carries. But so the campground had a lot of other people there. No, no, they were the only two at the campground. Right, no one else was staying there. The only people camping at the time that we know of was the clients with Don at the trail cabin and those two in the campground. Right that's on. it. Tom didn't think anything was wrong. Dr. Lipinski suggested they call out and see if there was a response. The whole chalet was awake now, so Tom allowed it. Oh, I guess people are awake. Let's see if we can help Is someone. anybody there? Nope. It's, everything's fine. No one's replying. They can hear someone yelling back and they're just like, Good night, everybody. Have a lovely evening. <laughs> Dr. Lipinski cupped his hands and bellowed. Is everything okay? A response came from the direction of the trail cabin. A clear male's voice echoed across the night. No, he shouted. What's the trouble? Dr. Lipinski yelled back. Bear, the voice answered. I bet you come down here and see. <laughs> what is George, it's 500 metres in the dark. You got a little zip line from the balcony. <laughs> I'm not telling. It'll ruin the suspense. Come find out. It's a surprise. I was just get, getting real passionate. Like, someone get down there. <laughs> Janet Kleiner woke to what she thought was two large animals fighting. In a half-awake state, she determined it was a mountain lion attacking a deer. Then she realised she was hearing words blended with sounds. There was a lengthy scream and then help and another prolonged scream and then the words, mummy, mummy. Janet shoved Robert, who was already beginning to rouse. He asked her what had made the noise, but she couldn't tell him. The screaming began, began again, the words now clearer. 
Robert suggested it was a child having a nightmare. Janet reminded him that there were no children at the campground. Perhaps they had arrived after they went to sleep, Robert had suggested. The screaming started again, but this time it didn't sound as close, as though the child was running down the hill away from the campground. <laughs> sure, it's a nightmare. <laughs> it's just a description of what they heard. At this stage, I don't think they still thought it was a child having a nightmare. Because <laughs> <laughs> we half know what's going on. I know everything. I'm like, guys. <laughs> <laughs> there was one last long scream and then complete silence. The clients were in a state of confusion. They had no idea how to respond. It was completely dark. They couldn't see anything but they just sat in their sleeping bags staring in the direction of the campground. Robert consulted his watch and it was 12.50 a.m. Don, so he, their camping mate, wasn't sure what had awoken him. He checked his watch. It was almost 1 a.m. He was laying on his side when he heard a noise at his back. He slowly rolled over to see the outline of a figure standing at the foot of his sleeping bag. He groggily watched as the shadow dropped to its knees and then fell down flat. Don recognized the person as 18-year-old Roy Ducat. He was giggling and babbling in such a way Don determined he was in a state of shock. He then spoke more discernibly. A bear got a hold of me, he said. I tried playing dead, but it didn't help. He dragged her off into the brush. You have to go after her. Oh, please forget about me. The bear dragged her away. Can't someone go and find her? Don was still only half awake and in a state of confusion. He accused Roy of joking with him, but then he noticed the boy's arm was hanging lifelessly from his shoulder socket and he was covered in blood. The sight of the bloodied Roy woke Don up real quick and he began running toward the chalet for assistance. But Roy yelled after him, begging Don not to leave him there by himself. Don helped the teenager half stumble, half crawl to the Kleins, who were camping nearby. Roy just kept repeating, the bear got the girl, it got the girl, somebody has to help her, the bear dragged her away. So that was that noise when they heard her. That's it sounded like up. a kid running running down a hill screaming. The bear was, she she was, was screaming as the bear away. was dragging her running away. I got nothing. <laughs> How do you feel about that? How do you feel now, Josh? <laughs> Sad. Good. That's, that's normal. Did I pass? <laughs> yes. They reached Jenna and Robert and it became very clear what had happened and that somewhere out there in the darkness there was a rampaging grizzly. Everyone made their way to the door of the trail cabin, but it was locked. By now, Roy began to shake violently and Don wrapped him in his sleeping bag and laid him down. Don told the clients to climb up the cabin roof and signal for help. As Robert began helping Janet in her ascension, he asked Don if he was coming up too. Don said no, that he needed to stay with Roy in case the bear returns. What a fucking hero. Mm. I'd be like, bye. <laughs> <laughs> bye, Felicia. Well, if the bear returned, he probably would. He's probably in the back of his head. He's like, yeah. I'd- no, this dude sounded like a hero. I watched a documentary about it and he seemed like a real chill dude. Hey. He was from California. He was kind of like a, a bit of a surfer guy, I think. And he Shuck was, his breath. Yeah. <laughs> but he seemed like he, he was just like, I just wanted to help these people so badly. Like, well, old mate's got his arm half hanging off, so yeah. he's not, he's not going to be climbing anything. Yeah, but you would have to have left him down there. Or outrunning him. That's, well, I think that's his second option. <laughs> yeah, that's well, what I'm thinking. He's acting brave, and if the bear comes hero out. Now. Oh, sorry, bro. <laughs> I actually didn't think of that, but we, yeah. We, we tried. <laughs> Robert began trying to signal the chalet with his torch, but the beam grew weak as the battery died. Oh, this yeah. is ridiculous. <laughs> he instead started using it to keep an eye out for the bear. Robert asked Don how Roy was doing. Bad was the answer he received. The boy could no longer walk. Janet knew if they didn't get help soon, Roy would die of blood loss. That's when they noticed the lights of the chalet flickering on and someone called out asking if everything was okay. Robert shouted no. As the group at the trail cabin awaited assistance, Roy never lost consciousness and clearly remembered what happened. He had been fast asleep when he awoke to Julie whispering to him, play dead. Suddenly, a massive paw struck the couple, knocking them apart. Roy ended up face down and from the corner of his eye, he could see Julie laying two feet away. He then felt something clamp down hard on his right shoulder all the way to the bone. 
Roy, in an act of incredible self-control, laid still, making no sound. When the biting stopped, Roy chanced to glance at his attacker. He saw the outline of a large grizzly standing on all fours over Julie, brutally mauling her. Oh, Jesus. Mm-hmm. The bear then made its way back to Roy, who shut his eyes just as it placed just as it placed its heavy paws on his lower back and began viciously tearing into his left arm and the backs of both his thighs. Ugh! Mm. Ugh, your hamstrings! Ugh! Imagine it! Ugh! Cramp! Oh, <laughs> that's what I mean! Uh, Julie, grab my feet! Truly, help I have a cramp! <laughs> he still didn't move and the bear again switched its attention to Julie. Now Julie's bones could be heard crunching oh, and she started shrieking, it hurts, someone help us. He noticed the cries were moving away down the slope. When the screaming gave way to silence, Roy got to his feet and ran towards the trail cabin, shock hiding the excruciating pain emanating from his wounds. He collapsed next to the first sleeping bag he found. All he could think about was Julie and he begged everyone he came in contact with to forget about him and to go after the girl. So you read the book, hey, George. That's pretty intense, like... Mm reading when you read it oh yeah but he was in shock oh yeah he didn't know what it was all about (laughs) (laughs) he really wanted to say save me save me no they in the documentary like he is in it it's a it's a pbs documentary called night of the grizzlies and he's in it and he talks about it and he talks about how like like and he gets really upset about it and he's like it's all he can still think about is her and like how he felt like responsible well that's it it. like he was saying like i'm okay he was in shock he didn't know how like the extent of his own injury. Yeah. So he's just like, I'm good. Go save her. her. It's like your arm's kind of half missing. Yeah. So we've got to fix that. So Tom Wharton, the manager, he's like, I guess it's the 60s, but he kind of doesn't speak that highly of women in the book, does he? He's just like these bitches around me being hysterical. It's so yeah, annoying. That's literally like, what it was like. He was just like, I'm sick of women. Like that's what he's saying. So Tom, although he has been stuck for three months alone in a chalet with only, but he's the only man in this whole chalet and it's like the kitchen girls and everyone, like he would just be like, I'm sick of this shit. Like, So Tom Wharton and 10 or so chalet guests had made their way to the trail cabin with a couple of the young ladies from the kitchen staff leading the way. They were all on edge. I love how they lead the way though. He's just like, women are useless. You two go out front. <laughs> You're expendable. <laughs> You're the shield. <laughs> when they got there, Tom saw the terror on Janet's face and immediately became annoyed. He assumed she was just a hysterical woman. Just being a woman. <laughs> yeah. Who decided she was tough enough to camp outdoors and then fill, fell to pieces as soon as a curious bear came sniffing around, waking up the whole chalet in the process. He was legit like, I can't believe she's done this. This hysterical woman just doesn't like being out at night. She shouldn't be out here. Like, rah, rah, rah. He sounds like he's the person the bear should have dragged away. She should have paid the $12.50. <laughs> <laughs> With him, Tom had brought Dr. Lipinski and another guest, who happened to also be a doctor, Dr. Olgerd Linden. Also with them was a Native American named Steve Pierre, his travelling companion, a priest named Father Tom Connolly, a strong young Montana man named Monty Cooper. It's a cool name. You just, if you Monty weird, from Montana. <laughs> yeah. If you had a weird name, welcome to the mountain. Yeah. yeah. The ranger naturalist Joan, along with a couple of other guests and the kitchen girls. Steve, the Native American, knew a lot about bears, and he said for safety's sake they needed fire. With the help of several other members of the group, he filled a galvanised metal tub with wood and started a fire, dragging it with them as they went. The rescue party reached the trail cabin, took in the scene before them, and everyone descended into a confused chaos. Those of the group that were feeling like this search was a bit of fun were swiftly sobered by the sight of Roy drenched in blood and wrapped in Don's sleeping bag. The group, for the most part, just didn't know what to do. They were now aware that they were in a very dangerous situation, out in the dead of night with a man-eating grizzly lurking close by in the dark. Dr. Linden was the first to act. He used the light from the tub to assess Roy. 
He requested a first aid kit, but none of the rescuers had thought to bring one. We got a spare arm, anybody? <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, Robert Klein had one. It's like, we're going to rescue people. What do we need? Nothing. <laughs> well, well, Walton was walking past going, they're probably like, do you want to bring a first aid kit? No, it's just some silly woman just acting out of control again. <laughs> I mean, Joan was smart enough to turn on the radio. Walton wouldn't even bring a fucking first aid kit. I'll just grab the muzzle. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Linden quickly went to work treating the boys' wounds with improvised compressors and tourniquets. The surgeon, Dr. Lipinski, was waiting in the wings ready to take over once the first aid was finished. Roy was still begging anyone who'd listened that they needed to go and find the girl, but Julie's search would have to be put on the back burner in order to assure Roy's safety and survival. Only then they could the search could begin. So they talk about how the Dr. Lipinski and Dr. Linden were used to like triage situations mm-hmm. and like triage is you help who you can help who first. You can, so yeah. And then everyone waits until like the most treatable is treated, sort of thing. So they it's basically have... a list of priority. Yeah, yeah. But wouldn't there be like sure focus on him? That's fair enough. But th- not everybody needs to be there for this fella. Couldn't we form some sort of let's go get this girl? Where are you going? I don't know. They really should have one of those cases that you break when a bear attacks. <laughs> in case <laughs> like of bear attack. Because <laughs> that was it. It's like you. It's like well, let's go find it. But where are you going? Well, the campground, but then where are you going? She's not at the campground anymore. That's very true. Like into the woods. Where, which, in which direction? Yeah. Where, and there's a bear in there. Who's going to volunteer for that? Is, is anybody <laughs> armed? Yeah. Are we just walking in? Not a rifle, no medical, nothing. Yeah, this is what I meant. They should have had this plan. They should have had this all <laughs> well, set they, up. But they should have had a plan Something, in place. Yeah, in for case, a bear but attack. They didn't think it would exactly. happen. Exactly. Uh, we need a mine manager there. He would have sorted that out before an attack <laughs> They're so reactive. <laughs> Dr. Linden requested something to transport Roy on and Monty Cooker and one of the kitchen girls sprung into action. Monty removed a set of bagged springs that had been fastened to the window of the trail cabin to keep the bears out. Several members of the group gingerly lifted Roy in his sleeping bag and placed him carefully on the springs. So he's still in his sleeping bag? Or they put him no, no, he put it, they put him in Don's sleeping bag because he's in shock to kind of keep him keep warm him, yeah, and comfortable, right Oh, that's right, they did too. The frail boy once again talked about Julie, asking if they'd found her yet. About half of the rescue group started to carry Roy back up the chalet, but they took a wrong turn, and no matter how many times the clients told them they were going the wrong way, the group wouldn't listen. What was supposed to be a 10-minute journey back to the chalet turned into a 30-minute fuck-around. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. When they finally reached their destination, Roy was taken inside and gently placed on one of the dining room tables. It was then Dr. Lipinski's turn to see what could be done for the mangled teenager. The rest of the rescue team was still hanging out down at the trail cabin discussing the potential of a search while Joan desperately tried to get a hold of headquarters on her pack set radio. After some initial technical issues, she was able to get in contact with the control officer and request medical supplies and assistance. She also let them know another another possible victim was missing, presumed dragged away by the grizzly. The group was told that help was on its way and the transmission was ended. Tom believed their next course of action was to try and locate Julie, but Joan wasn't so sure. She wasn't any more experienced than anyone else in the group, but she wore the National Park's uniform, so the rescue party naturally saw her as the leader. She declared there would be no search and they would return to the chalet and wait for professional help. Dr. Linden, having done all he could for Roy, remained with the group in case his medical experience was needed for the missing Julie. He addressed the group, saying they must find the girl. Joan thought it was reckless to attempt a search in the dark when they didn't even know where to begin. They had no idea what direction the girl had been dragged in the group began to argue about the right course of action. The priest, Father Connolly, agreed with Dr. Linden. He grew tired of the discussion, stating that Julie could be bleeding to death while they stood around talking. Joan didn't want to risk the lives of anyone else when help was already on the way. Tom remarked that the batteries of their torches were going flat and the lack of light made the decision for them. 
They might begin. ask the priest to send God in. Like just send him in. I'm not going to touch that subject. <laughs> you should probably cancel that one. <laughs> um, I would say he was probably praying or something. No, he's... <laughs> Thoughts and prayers. Should have been doing something useful, but oh yeah. We're not touching it. We're not going like there. not touching it. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> they begin their short hike back to the chalet, dragging the tub of fire behind them. They'd barely gone 50 metres when Tom stopped abruptly and motioned for the group to be quiet. They all heard it, the sound of a grisly woofing just to the left of them. Oh, this is... Someone exclaimed <laughs> that it was the bear and Tom said in a hushed voice that it sounded mad. The group clung to the fire tub and increased their pace, practically running to the chalet. Nancy, Tom's wife, was sitting out on the chalet balcony with a few other guests anxiously awaiting her husband's return. They'd been discussing the strange noise they could hear emanating from the night. Someone thought it could be an owl, but the avid bird watchers pointed out that owls were rare in the park. It was only later they realised they were hearing the distant moans of a lost girl. Oh, that's I love how they point out the owls are rare in the park. Well, so are grizzly attacks. <laughs> so... Have you not learnt your lesson? <laughs> Maybe it's an owl. <laughs> Roy Ducat was lucky in more ways than one. There were a total of three doctors and one registered nurse staying at the chalet that night. There was little to no medical supplies kept on the premise, but they believed Roy would survive. Joan had been contacted by headquarters and informed a helicopter with an armed ranger would be arriving at the chalet within minutes. Joan recruited guests to build fires to act as guides for the helicopter in order to keep them busy. There had been talk of another rescue party heading down to the campground and Joan was working hard to keep them from going. So she was like kind of distracting them. By being giving them jobs and stuff, but imagine being that helicopter pilot. He like in the dead of night had to go from a ranger station, and this is like mountainous in night, like flying over the mountains and everything. In the documentary yeah. I watched, I don't talk about it in the book, but he was talking about like he flew in Vietnam, and that he was just like I don't fucking care. Like he was not reckless, I wouldn't say, but he was like, oh, he kind of was like if my fate. My fate's already sealed. Like, whatever happens, happens. Like, I'm not, I can't sit here and just think about it all the time. Like, what's the point? Him, I can just see him saying that fine. And then the Rangers like, huh? Yeah. <laughs> He's like, our fate is sealed. No, but How rare a helicopter he, crashes over the mountain. <laughs> most pilots would never do it, like, because it's so risky. And he did it. And he did it at night. With no, like, landing or anything. He just had fires to, mm, to lead him in. What a boss. Yeah. Soon after the helicopter touched down, an outran Ranger Gary Bunny cradling a rifle in his arms. The guests assisted with the retrieval of the medical supplies and rushed them into the dining area, which had been turned into a makeshift operating room. In the confusion, the needle for administering intravenous blood was misplaced. Due to this, Dr. Lipinski recommended Roy being airlifted to the hospital in Kalispell. The grizzly had inflicted some serious damage to Roy, but he wasn't in a critical condition. Muscles and tendons had been ripped away from his arm and there were deep gashes on his back and legs, but Lipinski's biggest worry was blood loss. Roy was lifted carefully into the passenger seat of the helicopter next to the pilot. Moments later, he was he was on his way to Kalispell. He's probably like, <laughs> I would rather the bear. The pilot's like, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> the whole process took no more than 15 minutes. Joan finally turned to her superior ranger, Gary Bunny, and told him they were now needed to find the girl. She was told to stay by the radio as he and a group of volunteers descended on the trail towards the campground. Joan sat down at the dining room table by the radio and was joined by the third doctor, an Air Force physician from Maelstrom. I'm sure you're aware of this, he said to her, but I want to tell you one thing. What's that? Joan asked. The boy was in bad shape, he said gently, but the girl is going to be much worse. Joan nodded in understanding. Back at Trout Lake. Paul, Ray, Ron, Denise and Michelle had decided the best course of action would be to set up a new camp instead of returning to the initial bear ravaged spot. So, so how, remember how the, far was this from 
This one again from um, what's it? It's like it's a long way. A it's long over way. a whole like range of mountains. I think yeah, it was, was it like, like nine kilometers or something. It was like twelve that? kilometers as a crow flies. Ah, uh, yep, yep. So to get it's like, or it was more than that. It was like forty kilometers as a crow flies or something. It was a mm. long. It, the bear weren't it, the bears from there weren't going to pass over into that right, area. It was far enough where it wasn't going to be a cross pass situation. No way. It was it was like a, a fair way away. In, in, by road standards, like it would take you like an hour or so, an hour and a half to drive from Trout Lake to the going down to the Sun Road area where Logan Pass was, where you had to park your car and hike to the chalet. Yeah. The quickest way to get there it was it was an hour and a half. But if you caught a crow, you'd be fine. You'd be there pretty quick. Yeah, yes. if you got like multiple crows, like a hot balloon situation, yeah, you could. Um, we'd have to train him. It There's would probably take tr- longer to do that than to just in the drive. Crows, yeah, because yeah. mm. you'd have to train him and stuff, and you'd have to catch him. Like, there's a lot. Of, you'd be looking at a year if you wanted to go that and route. Then what's their lifespan? Like, you train them up, and they what die a year later? Take Not really. Life. They're and they're so smart. They're like the smartest animals ever. Let's drop him, guys. That's what they'd be like. They'd be like. Be... Yeah. So it's going to take you a long time to train him. What is this a book about crows killing? Sorry, no. <laughs> Sorry. you are. <laughs> that, was, that was totally me. I was going to put my hand up. <laughs> All five were asleep in their sleeping bags. Squirt the puppy was snuggled up with Denise when he woke her with a low growl. She could hear splashing coming from the shallows of the lake. Her eyes followed the sound and stopped when they reached the source. She could make out the shadow of a large bear. It moved out of the lake and down towards the original camp. Denise woke the others and told them what she had seen. The fire had burnt down to amber, so the men set to work and getting it going again. The group moved their sleeping bags closer to the rebuilt fire. Denise was concerned about Squirt's presence, possibly attracting the bear, so she stuffed him deeper into a sleeping bag. A couple of minutes after returning to their sleeping bags, they heard a noise from the edge of the camp, behind a log that had a forgotten bag of cookies sitting on it. Illuminated by the fire, the grizzly's head came into view, snatching up the bag of cookies and returning to the darkness. Yeah, right on. Mine. <laughs> I can just imagine this paw just coming out of the dark yeah. and just grabbing them and just, like, raking them yeah, away. Like, <laughs> I'll be back. <laughs> Here's a goddamn chalk chips. <laughs> oh, at least they're not raisin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The terrified group decided to stay awake, keeping the fire going and waiting for dawn. It was 3am and first light wouldn't be until at least 5.30am. Paul had moved his sleeping bag so close to the fire it was literally burning him and he had to retreat to a safer distance. So they were, fr- they were freaking out mm, by now. They yeah. were like, this is scary. We t- so no more like was- bears up. Cute. <laughs> was there anywhere where it said fires will deter them? Did you say that, or is it a thing? I think Steve it's a, Pierre. Yeah, Steve. I don't think they. I think it's just like a natural instinct for us to be like the fire will help. I don't know if some. I think of them, all animals are afraid of yeah. fire. Aren't they? I would say some of them had probably heard of it. You, I had talked about it earlier. Steve Pierre had his grandfather because he lived on reservations and stuff. His mm. grandfather had taught him about a lot about bears, and yeah. that was the one thing bears were afraid of was, was fire. fire. Yeah, It's not like, oh, I can see you guys now. Now I know where you are. Maybe with skinny head, it's done the wrong thing. Hey, shithead, he's probably like... <laughs> you got poor vision, got a, but now he can yeah, see Yeah, because he's not a regular <laughs> bear, is he? Yeah, of course, that guy's in the fire. I better help <laughs> him out. <laughs> it reminds you of that bug on The Simpsons where he had to try and keep it alive. It's just oh, the like squealing a, bug. It's just like it's sexually attracted to fire. That's <laughs> 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 exactly what right. <laughs> They once again heard the familiar splashing sound of the bear in the lake and at the same time a woofing sound began to emanate from the darkness of the woods above their camp. So more than one bear now. Oh, Jesus. The noises gave way to silence at around 4am and the campers drifted back off to sleep. At around 4.30am, a loud splash from the lake had awoken Denise and she peered out from her sleeping bag. 
The fire had been reduced to small flames and Denise could hear at, uh, could hear noise at the shoreline. She turned to see the shadow of a grizzly striding straight towards their camp. Denise pulled the sleeping bag over her head as the bear was about five feet from her. Squirt was trembling uncontrollably, but Denise did her best to lay as still as possible, holding the puppy tightly. The next thing she heard was the ripping of canvas and the grunting of the bear as it poured at her sleeping bag. By now, Paul had awoken and chanced to glance at the commotion. He saw the massive wet figure of the grizzly standing next to him. He did his best to lay still and silent. The noise of the sniffing and grunting bear was getting closer to him. Then, the huge animal bit into his sleeping bag, gripping his t-shirt tightly. He sprung from the bag, accidentally hitting the bear as he did so. I'm sorry. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Just trying to escape you more. (laughs) The bear reared up as if to attack Paul, and he scrambled as fast as he could to climb a tree, shouting about how the grizzly had ripped his shirt. Ron and Denise watched as the bear followed Paul to the tree, and Ron decided it was time for them to do the same. Denise refused. Squirt was was tied up and she was struggling to free him from his collar. Ron ended up pulling Denise from her sleeping bag and pushing him down towards the old camp. Meanwhile, Paul was yelling at Michelle and Ray to get out of their sleeping bags and head for the trees. He watched as Ron and Denise ran down the shoreline towards the old camp, followed by the puppy, so it must have escaped somehow. He turned his attention back to Ray and Michelle. The grizzly was making its way to Ray's sleeping bag. For a split second, the bear turned in the direction of Michelle and Ray took this opportunity to spring from his sleeping bag, running towards Denise and Ron at the shoreline. As he did, he shouted at Michelle to get out of her sleeping bag and make a run for it. The grizzly crunched down on the side of Michelle's bag and the girl began to scream. The bear tore at the bag with its long claws and Michelle shrieked that it was ripping her arm. Paul instructed her to get out of her bag and run. I can't, she screamed. He's got the zipper. So she couldn't get out because the bear had the zipper in its mouth. Then she yelled, he's got my arm. My arm is gone. Oh, my God, I'm dead. My arm is gone. It ripped mm. her arm off. Did it really rip her arm mm-hmm. off? Or she just like it hurt? No. Paul watched as the bear hoisted the sleeping bag in its mouth and dragged it up the hillside from the light of the dying fire. He then heard a sound he likened to bones crunching and shouted to the other three. The grizzly was taking Michelle up the slope. She's dead. She's dead, he yelled. Paul slid down the tree and joined the others on the shoreline. They consoled each other until the sun rose. An hour and a half after the attack, when the sun was rising, Paul and Ron ran back into camp to collect jackets and boots. Ron was sure he could hear the sound of bones snapping from up on the hillside. Oh, it's still in. The four frightened campers put on their boots and left the area as quickly as they could. They reached the end of the trail and burst out onto the going down of the Sun Road. They were assisted by a fisherman and his wife, who were just about to begin their hike into Trout Lake. The older couple drove the distraught group to the nearest ranger station to report their horrific ordeal. Jesus Christ. Mm. So back at Granite Park at 2.45 a.m., Ranger Gary Bunny led a rescue party to the campground, the Granite Park campground, almost two hours after the the attack. The party was made up of Tom Walton, Robert Klein, the priest Tom Connolly, his travelling companion Steve Pierre, Dr. Linden, the strong kid from Montana, Monte Cooker, Don Gullett, and six or eight other men. So they were talking about the chalet, how all the women were like, my husband doesn't need to be out there. And they were like crying and carrying on and stuff. Kind of sexist. I'd say very very sexist. You come then. Yeah. (laughs) The arranger advised that if they come across the bear, that everyone should shine their flashlights on the animal and stay out of the line of fire. They made their way along the trail, reaching the cabin. Father Connolly dragged the fire tub with them while other members of the group fed wood into it to keep the blaze alight. Other members of the party were calling out in the darkness, attempting to frighten the bear away if it was close by. Their main objective was to locate the missing girl, not terminate the grizzly, so they were avoiding any potential confrontation. At the trail cabin, they went over a plan of attack. 
Steve suggested a bear probably wouldn't carry a body for more than 100 metres. They would locate where the teenagers had camped and fan out from there. In the centre of the cleared campground, the rescue party found the spot of the initial attack. There were two blood trails radiating from the area. One went towards a trail cabin and one went down the hillside. They figured the first was Roy's, so the second had to be Julie's. This conclusion narrowed the search arc to 180 degrees. They cautiously followed the direction of the girl's blood trail down the thick woods. So you can actually see the blood trail? It's, like just it's not really... like a dragged blood. It's yeah, like dripping yeah. from yeah. the girl. Yeah, right. Can you imagine, like, if that was me, I'd be like, uh, uh, I think there looks okay to search. Like, I wouldn't have a clue, you know? That's what I mean. Like, like how do they just pick this up? Like, They're so lucky, like, the people that were there were there. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he was because he was a Native American. Like, I'm yeah. sure he knows all about. I'm not, not wow, stereotypical, <laughs> but I'm sure he like growing up on the reservations. His granddad. Well, he talks like, about that. His granddad taught him yeah. all of this, so he had these kind of survival skills that he could use, like hunting and that. And I guess he just was now hunting for a lost girl. You know what I mean? Mm. But I would just be like, mm, I, if I was a grizzly bear, where would I drag you? <laughs> the people are like, what is she doing? He's on all fours and starts yeah. walking around. I wouldn't be able to like stop doing a jump scare or something. Like that. I, just... I think you would be shitting your pants. You would be the no. one. You would be the one crying back at the chalet as bees going to search with the man. I'll be on the helicopter. I just got to hold his hand. <laughs> Everyone's walking through the forest. You're just blowing up a paper bag. <laughs> in the middle of everyone, bang. Josh is just like I shotgun the javelin. It's not for yeah. the bear. It's not me. for the bear. Yeah. <laughs> That was an old joke throwing back to when Josh used to watch Jeepers Creepers. He was like, I'd use a javelin on myself. <laughs> We're trying to stab this thing that doesn't die. But well, I'm out. <laughs> you don't know it's, it's not dying. It's interesting though, isn't it? Like you're most afraid of dying, so you kill yourself. Well, that's From probably the, the way it would have killed me. Just yeah. sniffing my body. Oh, you're so afraid. I know. Yeah. You would rather <laughs> impale yourself <laughs> Hey, listen, I was young at the time. Okay. I've had a lot to think you're about it. You're a teenager. Never mind. <laughs> The group found out and began calling out to Julie. The blood trail wasn't consistent and proved difficult to follow. It disappeared for some time, but was picked back up again by Steve. Within a couple of metres, he found a purse covered in blood. They opened it to check the money too, hey? And they were like, $1. (laughs) It wasn't a robbery. (laughs) (laughs) The group was desperate to find Julie. The longer they were out there, the more anxious they were becoming. A few members of the group were sure they would stumble across her body with a giant man-eating grizzly standing above her, guarding its victim. They followed the blood trail down the mountain and soon Gary the ranger called for silence. Out in the darkness, a strange noise could be heard. Further down the hill, to the left of the group, they heard a muffled cry. The men quickly forgot about the threat of the bear and ran in the direction of the cry. Gary, Tom and Steve were the first to locate the girl. She was laying face down in the earth in a hollow. Julie was in a, in a horrendous state. Oh, Jesus she was covered man. in so much blood they thought there was no way she could be alive. Dr. Linden rushed in to assist the girl and she mumbled, it hurts. While Monty, Don and a few others ran to grab another bed spring from the trail cabin, Dr. Linden examined Julie. You'd think you'd kind of bring that with you. Because you're down in the woods now and you're like, you two, go get the bed spring. There's all the chance that you're going to run into the grizzly again going back to get the bed spring to bring it back down. You know what I mean? Mm, Because you've got the guys like dragging the barrel and then you've got the guys like going out and get the wood, which I would not put my hand up for that job. Well, so to keep the fire alive, it's like just spread out and grab some wood and then bring it back. I think it was like... You spread out. (laughs) You would be the worst. Hey, we all would be like, no... Are you going to be helpful? No. <laughs> just be there on your phone. I'm going to have a thermometer <laughs> on the fire saying, she's getting low. You would just be like, I'll be the fire tub. I'd, I'd drag that tub. So heavy, I don't need a break. 
I want the gun. <laughs> Can I please have a gun. We used to shoot with our dad. I want the gun. I don't <laughs> I know do how it. to use it really, but <laughs> I, I want it. Her clothes were shredded and her hair was matted with soil and blood. Her right arm was completely free of flesh from her hand to her elbow, and the bone could easily be seen shining in the right torchlight. So it's a bone arm now. Like it's just she's skeleton. There were puncture wounds to her chest that were seeping foamy blood. The doctor knew these wounds were an immediate threat to the girl's life. Julie's lungs had been punctured and at least one had already collapsed, making it impossible for her to breathe normally. The doctor quickly went to work patching Julie up, starting with the holes to her lungs. He placed compressors on the punctures and bandaged them tightly. Julie whispered, cold, cold, and the men in the group began taking off their shirts and jackets, laying them on the girl's fragile body. Dr. Linden began tearing up shirts in order to apply them to the wounds and stem the blood flow. How mad is this fella, by the way? Like, just a yeah. doctor on the scene, just mm. doing what he can. Yeah. How lucky is it that there was even one so doctor there? So lucky. And yeah. they got, like, a surgeon and everything there. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, I've done a first aid kit. I'd be what like, here's a Band-Aid for your arm. <laughs> yeah, like, what do you do? You just place a Band-Aid on the bone. <laughs> Fixed. <laughs> it appeared Julie had barely any blood left. It was a miracle she was even still alive at this point. The bedspring stretcher arrived and the rescue party began their arduous journey back to the chalet. Once there and under the lights on the makeshift operating tray table, Dr. Linden was able to see the full extent of the damage inflicted by the grizzly. Julie's face was almost the only untouched part of her body, which was covered in gaping gashes and cuts. Huge parts of her legs had been chewed away, presumably eaten by the bear. Oh, so she was alive yes, and it was yes. eating her. Mm. She had heaps of like cuts and scrapes as well because like it dragged her. Oh, like over rocks and over, through yeah, over rocks and, and branches like and dirt. It's just taking chunks, obviously eating her, her whole entire arm back to the bone, and then just taking chunks over the leg. Yeah, I, I guess it had to have eaten her, didn't it? Mm. Imagine being alive and it's eating you. There'd be so much shotgun on that. She would just. I know, oh. but you're just listening to it. Ooh, even being dragged away. That'd be so scary. Mm, that'd be my like least. Me, this is not going to end well. Yeah. No, in no like, world. Oh, shit, now people have to look for me. So like, I'm, I'm such dead. a burden. That'd be my favorite. <laughs> no. You, you'd I'd be, be like, I'm a bird. <laughs> they'd be like, it sounds like a child squealing. Hey, it's you. Like, like, so they would drop itch. me and just go, I can't deal with this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I regret this. <laughs> He administrated a painkiller to the quickly fading girl and set to work with Dr. Lipinski and the Air Force physician. Even in a major hospital operating room with access to proper tools and medical supplies, Dr. Lipinski believed too much time had passed to save the girl. Dr. Lipinski had his teenage daughter hold a torch close as he sliced into Julie's ankle in an attempt to find a vein. Due to the extreme blood loss, the majority of her veins had collapsed and, then, and, oh, and the doctor was having great difficulty locating a working vein. He tried again in her wrist, and after much difficulty, he was able to insert a needle for a plasma bottle. So I guess, I assume they found the needle. Father Connolly had made his way to Julie's head and began talking to her about God's love, and the girl seemed to respond. He told the doctors were do- he told her the doctors were doing everything they could, and God would take care of her. I know he will, she whispered, her lips barely moving. So she's, like, aware of what's going on around her. Mm, yeah. Father Connolly looked down the table at Dr. Lipinski and wordlessly asked if the girl was going to make it. The doctor slowly shook his head. The father asked for water and baptised Julie. He then absolved her of her sins and when and when he said the act of contrition, everyone in the room was amazed to see Julie appeared to be following along with her lips. At 4.12am, her breathing had become shallow. She hiccuped once or twice and then Julie Helgeson laid silent. Her body was secured to the right landing tray of the helicopter that had returned from Kalispell and she was whisked away into the night, so taking her to the coroner in Kalispell. 
Now that there was nothing more to be done for the grizzly victims, Tom used his portable radio to get in contact with headquarters. He asked to be put in contact with his boss, the concession of Ross Looting, so he could offer him a full report on the incident. If you can contact Ross, Tom began, tell him we had a bear attack up here. The radio operator hissed in return. Don't say anything more about the incident. We'll call Ross Looting for you, but don't say any more about the incident over the radio. Moments later, Ross's voice emanated from the radio. I'll be there in a few hours. So they were like super hush-hush about it. Like, don't say anything. They don't want anyone knowing about what had happened. No. Because I guess they were waiting for it to happen. Mm. That's bad. Bad, None of the rangers were surprised at all, which is kind of sad. But then I, when I was watching the documentary, one of the rangers was actually on it. You hear about him so soon, Bert Gildart. And he was talking about, it's kind of like us being in a role at work and being like, yo, this is a problem. So you're saying that to your boss. And the boss is like, I don't want you to concentrate on that right now. You need to do this. And you're going to your boss, we need to fix this. This is a problem. And your boss is saying, nah, we're not doing that right now. It's not a priority. We're doing this. So like the rangers wanted to fix the problems. Like the lower level ones were aware of it. That was going on. They wanted to do something about it, but they needed permission from like the executive rangers and the higher ups to get it done. And they were like, no, 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 we've got fires. We've got bigger problems. Bigger problems than a bear eating people? Yeah, so the rangers were like trying to stop it from happening and being like, we need to kill these bears or trap them, remove them, take them elsewhere. And they were like, no, we're not doing that. Not right now. I feel like this is happens in every workplace. Yeah. And then they go, fucking shit kickers. I'm just a shit kicker. I don't care. I'm not doing my job. Today. I'm going to sit on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> so back at Trout Lake... Denise, Ray, Ron, and Paul made it to the ranger station in a state of complete disarray. Seasonal ranger Leonard Lander could tell straight away something was wrong. Ray began to ramble a story about a grizzly in their camp at Trout Lake. Lander remembered this group. He'd issued them a fire permit just yesterday, but someone was missing. Yesterday, there had been two women, a tall and short. Now there was only one tall person. He interrupted Ray, asking where the other girl was. Ray replied that she was still up there. The bear had dragged her away. The ranger asked one of the campers to return with him to show him the exact location. He tried to comfort the panic-stricken campers, saying their missing friend might be okay and was probably just up a tree. She's not up a tree, Paul ominously stated. Ranger Lander phoned headquarters and informed them of the predicament. He told the person on the other end that he was going to Trout Lake to search for the missing woman. He was told to take his rifle and to be careful. So Lander had been listening to what was happening at Granite Park. The night before. So they were talking back and forth on the radio the whole time with what was going on at Granite Park. So like Joan Devereaux was talking to like other rangers and he and his wife were laying in bed. So they were seasonal rangers. They were in their cabin and he has it on low because I guess they call you up if they need your help. And he noticed a lot more chatter going on than what he had previously heard. So he kind of turned up and they were listening. So he knew there was a bear attack at Granite Park. Yeah, And now this has happened. He's like, what the fuck? Like, really? The ranger instructed for Ron and Paul to lead him back to their camp and for Ray to take Denise home. Ranger Lander, Paul and Ron set out from the Trout Lake trailhead, moving at a brisk pace. They'd only gotten about half a kilometre when Lander realised he had forgotten the first aid kit back in his truck at the trailhead and instructed Paul to go back and retrieve it and catch back up. sure, no worries. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Paul, he was a runner. Like, you ever seen the movie Juno? You know, yes. the pregnant chick, you know, the guys, how they run around and stuff yeah. and that. He was like one of them in high school. Yeah. So he was like fairly fit. You can outrun a bear champ. But <laughs> Oh, wait, no, you can't. Paul left without complaining. I'd be fucking complaining oh. so hard. No, <laughs> so windy. Can you come with me? <laughs> <laughs> Paul left without complaint and returned within what seemed like minutes, first aid kit in hand. 
On the trail, a fisherman named Andy Sampson caught up with them on horseback. Lander explained the situation and asked Andy to stay behind them. Andy was annoyed, but he complied for, he complied for the most part. Lander sensed that Andy thought they, that the three of them were overreacting and ruining his fishing trip. So a few times, like, he was on a horse and a few times he, like, tried to get around the ranger and the ranger had to, like, step, step out. in yeah. front of him. And, like, block him because he was like, fucking, he didn't think, he was like, who cares, it's a bear, like, whatever. The four men barely spoke as they hiked towards Trout Lake. It was a little after 10 a.m. when the ragtag group arrived at the destroyed camp. Lander watched as Andy, now seeming to take the situation more seriously, unsheathed a long axe. Lander asked the girl's name. The boys replied, Michelle. All four of them spread out a few feet and began moving through the woods, calling Michelle's name. When they had gone about 50 metres from the lakeshore, Paul pointed to the ground and said Michelle had been there. He gestured towards the slope and said the bear had dragged her in that direction. Lander cocked his rifle and led the group slowly up the hill. Imagine if it was like Predator and not a bear. <laughs> okay. It's just like the whole cocking of the rifle. He wouldn't have taken a sleeping girl. He would have taken a girl with a rifle. Get to the chopper. When they crossed the trail, Lander noticed a white clump laying on the cleared ground. He bent over and picked it up. It was a human ear. He informed the others of the find and they all remained strangely calm. They continued up the slope. After going only a few feet more, they discovered what was left of Michelle's sleeping bag. A trail of feathers up the hill showed the bear's path and the group followed. Shortly after discovering the sleeping bag, they came across a blood-soaked jacket and blouse. One of the boys sang out, here she is, and Lander rushed up the hillside. There was Michelle Coons on her back and disfigured beyond recognition. She no longer had a stomach or an abdomen and her head was missing large clumps of hair. Lander backed away from the scene and took a moment to collect himself. The rangers that had been called in for backup just arrived just as the body was being discovered. One ranger, Bert Gildart, that was a ranger I was talking about before, had hiked in not long after Lander and the boys had. He helped guide a helicopter to land at the lake's shoreline and was given a rifle by a ranger who exited the aircraft. They made their way to the mutilated corpse of Michelle Coons. An hour later, the girl's body was strapped to the aircraft and was airlifted to Spell. So she's off to the coroner as well. Ron and Paul had collected what items they could find from their ravaged campsite and were accompanied back to the Lake McDonald Ranger Station by Andy Sampson and his horse. Rangers Lander and Gildart were left alone to clear the area. It was 6pm by the time they had hiked out the last group of remaining campers. The Rangers phoned headquarters and were told to get a good night's sleep and report back in the morning. That same day at Granite Park, a four-man search and destroy party was making its way to the Granite Park chalet. Their assignment was to kill every grizzly that frequented the Granite Park area. The group consisted of Chief Naturalist Frank Elmore, two biologists Robert Wassam and Cliff Martinka, and seasonal ranger Carol Hagen. Frank's job was to act as a sort of detective recording witness testimonies and describing the surroundings of the attack. The two biologists were tasked with the actual destruction of the bear. Carol was kind of a backcountry all-rounder. Native to Montana, he could hike non-stop and handle a rifle with expert accuracy. With the exception of Frank, they all had rifles. When they arrived at the chalet, they were greeted by Tom, who was asked to explain their bear, the bear situation to them. He informed them about the trash pile encounters and the two bears that regularly showed up for feedings. Tom was told both bears would have to be terminated. The rangers set out to get a lay of the land, and 4pm they spied a sow and a cub through binoculars feeding on berries at a small lake about three kilometres from the chalet. Tom had a look and said that he'd never seen the bear, so the rangers excluded it from their kill list. When 8.30pm rolled around, the rangers had set up behind the chalet awaiting the bear's arrival. They'd put out some food at the trash pile to entice the bears out in the open. Tom and his boss, Rod Ludding, were in charge of illuminating the spot with their flashlights while the rangers looked on through their scopes. That were They were at a range of about 50 metres. At around 10pm, a large shadow loped towards the pile. 
Tom and Ross shine their flashlights on the large silver tip grizzly. So it's old mate silver tip. Silver tip. Mm. Do you know why they call them grizzlies as well? Because grizzly is like, it's the, so griselle is French for like silver tip, like blonde highlights. So they call them grizzly bears, griselle bears. Mm. Grizzle. So we're really just calling them a grizzly bear when we call him silver tip. Yes. yes. <laughs> Robert what a, whispered. What a paradox. <laughs> Robert whispered, whispered a count. One, two, three, and all three men pulled their triggers. The grizzly staggered and collapsed. The rangers be- pelted it with another round of bullets. The bear jerked briefly, then laid unmoving, its eyes shining reflective from the light of the torches. Fifteen minutes had passed when they heard huffing signaling the arrival of bear number two. When they assumed the bear had reached the bait, Tom and Ross switched on their flashlights and bathed the grizzly in its beams. It was the smaller bear, just as they expected. It briefly looked in the direction of the light and then resumed eating. Like the first, on the count of three, a volley rang out, hitting the massive animal. It flew into the air and hit the ground hard. Again, the rangers fired another round, ensuring the grizzly was dead. Upon inspection, they discovered both bears were female. The rangers inspected the bears' mouths and paws, looking for evidence of their involvement in the previous night's attack. They found not even a single drop of blood. They cut them open to inspect their stomach contents, but all they found were half-digested leaves and berries. They returned to the chalet to contact headquarters and inform them of the kill. But was the grizzly responsible for the brutal attack, one of the two that was destroyed? So they started reporting that they'd got it. Not those four. They had reported to headquarters that we killed bears, and then headquarters started reporting that they'd gotten the grizzly that had killed. When they really just got the vegan bears, the berries (laughs) and the leaves. Well, there's no evidence that it was part of it yet, but they already went and was like telling newspapers, we got it. The next day, while Cliff was studying the two dead bears, he noticed the bait from the previous night was missing. Only a large animal could have eaten so much food in such a short period of time. Tom was asked about the possibility of another bear, but Tom insisted there was only the two that had been shot the previous night. He mentioned at the start of the season, he and the employees had seen tracks of a sow and two cubs in the, sh- in the snow, but they hadn't seen any sign of them for several weeks. The rangers thought about it for a moment, but went about their day taking measurements and inspecting the environment. Not long after 2pm, Dave Shea, Cliff's assistant, arrived at the chalet, rifle in hand. He'd been instructed to leave an elk research project in order to assist Cliff at Granite Park. How fucking sick are these dudes' jobs, hey? Like, would you give anything to be a ranger? Like, just go on and watch an elk and, like, looking at fucking wolverines and bears? Bullshit. There's heaps of wolverines at the park, too. It's cool. The first thing the young seasonal ranger asked when he saw the dead grizzlies laying side by side was, where's the others? The rangers were puzzled and asked what others. He informed them that there was a sow and two cubs that would come out at night and that he'd seen them at the chalet only the week before. After dinner, Dave joined his boss and the other rangers as they sat up behind the chalet for another night of bear hunting. Dave said that the sow and cubs hadn't appeared until after midnight the week before. A few of the rangers decided to head to bed and asked to be woken at the first sign of the bear. Just after 10.30pm, a familiar woofing could be heard coming up the trail towards the chalet and the sleeping rangers were roused. The sound of two cubs squealing sounded through the night and a sow continued woofing and grunting as if she were preparing for a fight. Later, Tom remarked it was the most ferocious he'd ever heard a bear sound and he wondered if it had caught the scent of the two dead grizzlies. So the two dead grizzlies were still at the dump. She was like, my friends. It soon became apparent why the chalet never saw the bear. Unlike the other two bears who would happily perform under spotlight, this grizzly was extremely skittish. At the time the bear arrived at the food dump, the ranger Carol had slipped down the stairs of the balcony and the slight noise of the incident sent the bear running. It's like a fucking goofy commercial or something. (laughs) Like, just can't get it right. 
The rangers decided to work in shifts and await the animal's return. A little after midnight, the bear returned, but was again frightened away by a chalet employee lighting a lantern inside. So they're like, go and get a midnight snack or something, weren't they? (laughs) It was just like super bad timing. They didn't think the bear would come back a third time, but regardless, Dave decided to keep watch. Just before 1am, Dave heard the telltale signs of the bear's arrival. He quietly awoke the others. Within moments, Frank and Ross were manning the torches and all four rangers were staring down the scope of their rifles. When a large shadowy figure began to make its way across the gully, Frank and Ross switched on their torches. In the beam, they caught a medium-sized grizzly. Carol hastily counted to three and all four rangers fired. The bear spun erratically and began to bawl at the cubs. The ranger released another round and the bear flopped to the ground as the cubs fled. It had been exactly 48 hours and five minutes since Julie Helgerson's attack. The hunting group sped across the gully, anxious to examine the dead grizzly. Cliff knelt down next to it and expected its paws. There was blood matted on the fur between the claws. Interestingly, a paw pad hung loose from a hind leg like a flapping half-sole. This old injury would have kept the grizzly in constant pain, and a bear in pain is the most dangerous. Cliff went over the facts. The bear had blood on its paws. It frequented the garbage site around midnight, the same time Julie Helgerson had been attacked. It was a sow with cubs, the most aggressive kind of grizzly, and it had an injured paw that would have kept it constantly aggravated. Cliff addressed the rest of the group, stating he believed they had killed the bear responsible for the death of Julie Helgerson. That's what we call a royal flush in the grizzly bear. Pretty much, right? (laughs) We got her. He's like, this will, fuck it, this will do. (laughs) (laughs) So back at Trout Lake, at headquarters, the two rangers, Leonard Lander and Bert Giltard, had been waiting for over two hours for instructions to hike back into Trout Lake and destroy the bear responsible for Michelle's death. None of the higher-ups were yet to give the go-ahead and the pair were growing impatient. It was around 11am when they were finally given approval to eliminate the grizzly. The two hot-tailed it to Trout Lake Trailhead. By noon, they were on the trail headed towards the ruined campsites. They were instructed to kill every bear they came across until the one responsible for the attack was identified and destroyed. So there's no way to tell which one attacked them until they kill them and like inspect no, their tummy. Right. So, and their tummy, the bear's tummy. <laughs> I'm just going to inspect your tummy. <laughs> yeah. so like, it's like, ah, stop it, it's tickling. <laughs> so they basically just kill everything and then like there's no other way you can do it. At 4pm, they were poking holes in salmon cans and distributing the juices near the logjam area. They were still yet to encounter a single bear. They continued to spread the aromatic salmon on the lake shore, hoping the sun would quicken the process. Within an hour, the place reeked of fish and the rangers were sure the bear would be arriving shortly. After several hours with no sign of a bear, they decided to search the area. Since it was getting late, they decided to head towards the Arrowhead shelter cabin where they would be spending the night. After travelling for almost two kilometres, they came across fresh bear tracks, but darkness was setting in and it was too late to investigate. They jogged to the empty trail cabin, not wanting to be caught out in the night with the bear. They went to sleep eagerly awaiting daylight. So they were talking about when they're on their way there, hey, George, they were hearing sounds, like something was following them to yeah, the cabin. Yep. They were scared. Like they were just like, we have to get there like as soon just as possible. They were, just because they were peeking a bit, everything was a sound? No, I think it? they were, like they could I'm hear I'm sure that would have been part of it. Yeah. Like you're out there hunting a bear, every noise you probably heard, you're probably like, what was that? Yeah. But that was like, they're there to do a job. Yeah, so. and yeah. they could hear something moving through the brush, but it was like night now and they were just like, we need to get to the cabin. The young rangers awoke in their beds at 4am. It was still dark, so they laid there going over their plan of attack until around 6am. There was a small stream running past the front of the cabin and Bert stepped outside to collect some water. The sun had only just begun to rise, so the area was only dimly lit. Bert had only gone a couple of metres when he noticed movement out in front of him to the right. He squinted up the trail. Visibility was poor, but the ranger was able to make out a mass of fur about 12 metres away. It was unmistakably a grizzly bear lumbering towards him. 
Bert was standing metres from the open cabin door. Only a few seconds had passed when he realised the bear wasn't going to stop. He shouted to Lander to bring the rifles out because the bear was here. When Bert spoke, the bear stopped and slipped sideways into the dense brush. The ranger thought it was strange the bear hadn't retreated. It only changed its direction of travel. The grizzly's behaviour suggested one of three things. The animal was crossing the creek and running away up the hill. The bear was using the protection of the thick brush to retreat upstream or the bear was going to re-emerge in front of the cabin. Emerging in front of the cabin would usually be the least likely scenario, but this was an unusual bear and Bert predicted it would do what was least expected. Ranger Lander handed Bert a rifle and Bert told him where he believed the bear to be. The area in front of the cabin sloped down towards the creek. If the bear wanted to attack them, it had to come up over the bank. And that's exactly where it appeared, peeking its head over the bank. So that's where it was. Like it was acting that's in a... That's creepy. Yeah. That's like, hey, I followed you here and uh, hey. Banana. It was like the least likely course of action and it took it. It I became... just seen its head, that skinny mm-hmm. looking weird bear. <laughs> the skinny head. Oh, it's gross. Yeah. <laughs> it became... <Kill> it. <laughs> It became apparent the bear was stalking the men. Its predatory behaviour unnerved Bert and Lander, and they carefully edged closer to the animal to secure a clear shot at it. They sound like a like a seventies sitcom, like Bert and Lander, like you got guns, <laughs> like Starsky and Hutch. <laughs> yeah. But the head had slipped back out of sight, so the men backed off, not wanting to lose the animal. After a moment, the bear began rampaging up the bank, charging the men. Through the sights of the rifle, all Bert could see was the fur of the grizzly's neck and chest. He fired at a range of less than six metres. Oh, that's close. At almost the exact same time, Lander let off a shot. The bear reared backwards and collapsed down the bank. They rushed down towards the bear, rifles still trained on it, but it was obvious the grizzly was dead. The rangers discussed cutting open the bear's stomach and searching the contents, but they thought it was better to wait for instructions regarding the autopsy. Bert was sure they had gotten the animal that had killed Michelle Coons. Lander asked how he knew, and Bert stated the bear's behaviour was predatory. It had been at the cabin stalking the men, and that wasn't normal. So it sounded like, from what they said, it followed them to the cabin and then waited for them. They didn't see a single bear, and then all of a sudden there's this bear that's followed them all over the cabin. And didn't want anything to do with the smell of salmon. No, it it wanted them. them. So Lander agreed that they still had to search and destroy any other bears in the area. They spent the rest of the day looking and didn't see a single bear, which I like. That's nice. Like, they didn't kill anything unnecessarily. Later, when an autopsy was performed on the dead grizzly, a ball of undigested human hair was found in its stomach contents. So they got it. That was it. It's Michelle's hair. So why did these bears attack? The Montana Livestock Sanitary Board examined the brains of the four bears and concluded none of them were rabid. Interestingly, the blood on the paws of the sow at Grenham Park was not human, but she was still confirmed to be Julie Helgerson's killer based on strong circumstantial evidence, which would never have held up in a court of law. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so they didn't actually find anything from her. So the FBI tested the blood and it wasn't human. So or, they well, cut it wasn't over? hers. Maybe it was Roy's or maybe there was... It was the 60s. Like, maybe there was issues because it was mixed blood or they yeah, came back true. inconclusive or whatever. Yeah, long time ago. Yeah, but they said they... No, and they didn't talk about, like, what they found in its stomach. Because they said they, they cut the others over, open and didn't find anything, but this one they don't talk about at all. Because I'm guessing... It didn't attack her face or anything. It only attacked her flesh. And I'm guessing flesh in the stomach dissolves more because they only found hair in Michelle's. Yeah, this was two days like later. Michelle's hair. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah, good. So the bear from Trout Lake had human hair in its stomach contents. It was without a doubt Michelle Coon's killer. But what factors led to these attacks? Some parks personnel incorrectly theorised that lightning storms and subsequent fires had enraged the bears. And that's what many newspapers reported at the time. That's what they were saying. The bears were mad because of lightning. <laughs> Climate change did it to her. <laughs> Some people, including Joan Devereaux, blamed the youth and inexperience of the victims for the attacks, which is not fair, I don't think. 
Blame the victims for the attack. Yeah, they think that's like fucking shit. It's not their fault. Well, they have been told that it's fine to... And you know to what's, camp in that. Yeah. And then it's your fault when you do Exactly. And you know what's really sad? Like if you're under the age of 21, you would have to ring your parents for permission to go into the backwoods areas. So they had to ring their parents. Like, so Michelle had to ring her dad and be like, can I go do this? And they were like, yes, go There's for it. There's a fine, honey. You'd be right. No, I don't think it was more like that. I think it's like, how sad would it be as a parent being like, yeah, you've that's fine. You can go do that. Oh, and it was, bang, yeah. yeah. And also as part of the documentary, they were all friends. So the people, the five, like Denise and Michelle and that, had invited Roy and Julie to go camping with them at Trout Lake. Roy and Julie had already been to Trout Lake the week before and wanted to go to Granite Park Chalet. So they invited Paul, the 16-year-old, who, I don't know, maybe he had like a six-pack or something. They invited him to go with them to Granite Park Chalet, but Paul decided to go to Trout Lake. So this was like a group of friends. And in the group, like, they on the two, it's crazy, hey. Which makes it so much more, like, mysterious of, like... Two bear attacks in one... But different bears, like, not the yeah. same. That's what... In different... but And they were all close friends. It, it's, it's like poor Paul was going to end up in it somewhere or another. <laughs> either, wasn't either way, the bus boy was going to yeah, be a part of it. Yeah, the bus boy was fucked. But why, after 50 years without an attack, would this happen now and twice in one night? The answer was a combination of human interaction and the park service's inaction. People had been feeding the bears both directly and indirectly. This in turn made the grizzlies associate humans with food. And not only did they lose their fear of them, they became attracted to them. This in conjunction with injuries made for a bad bear situation. The sow at Granite Park had an injured paw and it was later reported that the grizzly at Trout Lake, also an older female bear, had pieces of glass lodged in its drawers, like its back molars, Mm. from eating trash. So it was in pain as well. These bears had lost their ability to hunt and forage successfully and were relying on humans for survival. The park also had a huge influx of visitors, more than they'd ever experienced before. There was far more people encroaching on the bears' habitat, greatly increasing the chance of an attack. The large number of visitors compounded with the dry hot summer and countless fires had the park's employees spread extremely thin. Some were doing the work of three people. The rectification of the bear feeding at Granite Park and the relocation of the dumpster diving bear in the Trout Lake area wasn't high on their list of priorities when it should have been. While it was just a huge coincidence that the fatal attacks happened on the same night, when all factors were taken into consideration, an attack was bound to happen. After it all happened, the park services was asked why they allowed the feeding of bears at Granite Park Chalet, and they responded that they weren't aware that it was happening and that such practices were actually illegal. Bullshit. Yep, Quick burn the season of mm, the journal. That's it, it's hey. Yep, they were like, nope, we didn't know it was happening. If it was happening, we didn't know about it. When there was so many reports filed and everything, yeah. and they were just like, no. Because of these attacks, Glacier National Park overhauled a lot of the park's rules and practices, so they installed bear boxes in like popular areas. So it's just like, and like bear safe garbage cans so the bears can't get garbage out of the cans. And they have now have a hike in, hike out policy. And it's basically like a policy, and like not a policy, but it's a saying like a fed bear is a dead bear. Mm. So if you were, think it's cute and you like the bears and you want to feed them, that bear is going to end up dead. They'll have to kill it because it's accustomed to being fed and it's yep. dangerous now because it loses its fear of humans. Which is the problem. I still think 50 years and then one night. Well, it's, I was thinking yeah. about that too because... Like 50 years, there's only been attacks, there's never been any fatalities, but that's the ones they know about. Like, how many people would have gone missing in the national parks and yes. not known what happened to them? Yeah. Could have they been bear attacks? Yes, because there was a lot of missing people, but they didn't attribute it to the bears because they couldn't. Nowadays, most people, you'd be like, the bears got them or mm. something, you know what I mean? Or they got lost and now they're dead. Yeah. But they're talking about like the calculations. They've done an actual calculation yeah. on 
the not having any fatalities in 50 years and then also that the attacks happening on the same night and all that. And they said it was like one trillion to one, but they didn't factor in all the other things. Yeah, because I think when they were doing like the stats on it, they only do stats based on like prior behavior. Mm. Also, like if you if there's been one bear attack in 50 years, the chances of it happening again is, is X amount. When there've been none, like it fucks with the stats. Like it doesn't give a true, kind of like when they search for the Tasmanian tiger, the the chances of it happening because it hasn't been seen so long is basically impossible. Yep. But it's like, well, that was bound to happen. They just didn't, they don't factor that in in stats. No, that's right. But that was it. And it's just crazy. They all knew each other. Mm. And the Grizzlies did that. And there's been heaps of attacks since. Lots of deaths. I think not so much Glacier anymore. Lots of deaths from Grizzlies. Yeah, like, in Yellowstone, um, there's been quite a few. Yeah. Yosemite had one. It's getting... It's kind of like a, I don't know, double-edged sword. Like, it, it's kind of getting better and worse at the same time. Like, people are more respectful and everything. And so it's happening less. But at the same time, there's more people entering the park. So I think there's that's more the chance. biggest thing about it is ex- exactly like the sharks. Like the, they're going, yep. oh, sharks are getting more aggressive. Well, no, there's just more people going in the water. Yes. Grizzlies aren't getting more aggressive. There's just more people going into the national yep. parks. I'm, people are fucking dumb as dog shit. Like, I'm not kidding. When I was in Yosemite, Dan and I were just there, like barbecuing. And you're so careful with how you do everything. There was people across from us. And I, I don't know. They, I didn't hear them speaking English. So I don't know whether they knew much about the parks like policies or how you, you do things. I was speaking, I think Spanish and listening to like Spanish music and they were like dancing and literally like dancing, like, like pretty a big much old dancing chicken drum. No, I'm not kidding. Like pretty much throwing meat around the campsite that they were in. They had like oh, shit wow. everywhere. And we were visited by the grizzly, like not the grizzly, the black bear that night. So I wouldn't be surprised if that had something to do with, they weren't, they weren't like being careful. They weren't using their bear box. They just had eskies out everywhere and they were just like <sighs> literally like leaving rubbish and food, like half-eaten plates and everything around. And I was just like, this is bad. And then the next time we went, a dude literally at the campsite next to us had a dog with him. And it's like, you can't have dogs. But I didn't want to say that to mum. <laughs> Do you think that was part of like the Michelle case? There was a dog in the camp as well? Because I, I think I read that bears don't have really good eyesight. Yes. They're just really good at like... Smelling. Yeah, and smelling. the bear would have... Because Michelle was with the puppy for like three hours yeah. at a time, they would have smelt the puppy on her. Yeah. And that's what attracted... I, really I feel like should, that was going to happen anyway. They should have kept that fire going. Who falls back asleep after? I'd be like, wood. Wood. Maybe they're doing wood. weird stuff with Paul. I don't know. But I would have been the same. I would have. They were going wood, 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 but wood. it was something different. <laughs> 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 no. Bless boy, get over it. I don't want to... <laughs> But you read about it and it's like like you watch the documentary as well and they talk to like the victim's parents and, and Roy who was attacked in a, this Night of the Grizzlies. Is just If you just YouTube Night of the Grizzlies PBS documentary, it'll come up and it's so interesting. And they say in it, like Roy says that after reading the book, like his side of the story is like very accurate. It's pretty mm. much exactly what happened from yeah. what you read in the book. So, yeah. If anyone's interested, definitely have a read. It's a good book. Very good book. Just don't do it in the middle of like a national park. I don't know. I did it. I don't think it's that big of a deal. Yeah, but you look psychotic. It made me feel better because I was like, I'm not fucking rolling in trash. All my food's in the car with mum. She's with me, <laughs> not me. <laughs> so just remember, if you have a story Lovely. for us, your story at mellowtigerpodcast.com. You can email us at Josh, George, or Bree. That's B-R-E-E at mellowtigerpodcast.com. That's Josh at mellowtiger, George at mellowtiger, Bree at mellowtiger. Email us. We're cool with dick pics. Mm. I'm going to regret saying that later. <laughs> I'm, I'm partial to one. <laughs> He's undecided, so yeah. be gentle. <laughs> no, and 
We've got the Facebook page, Mellow Tiger Podcast. Also the Instagram account. We post funny photos in regards to each episode. And we'll see you guys later. See you guys. Have a good week. Goodbye, everybody. I say goodbye. <laughs> you, Josh. Yay. <laughs>